Good morning, everybody, and um, thank you very much for welcoming me back. It's uh, been a real pleasure to, become, to come over here to Wanganui East Baptist and share the Word of God with you. And this morning, uh, what I want to do is to go back to something that we talked about earlier in the year, and that was uh, when we discussed uh, Paul and Timothy from the book of um, uh, Philippians. But this morning, we're going to look at them from the book of Second uh, Timothy, because uh, in this book, Paul was writing to Timothy and uh, giving him some words of encouragement. And what I've um, headed up my talk this morning is leading or leaving, sorry, a legacy. Um, it was a little bit, little bit like an introduction when we talked about Paul and Timothy uh, from Philippians. But as we continue on this book of, sorry, on this journey and leaving a legacy, I want to look at these verses and, and keep in mind some of the things that we learned earlier about Paul. And uh, we read in Acts chapter 16 that Timothy was a disciple who lived in Lystra. And um, earlier in the book of Acts chapter 14 verse 19, we read that in Lystra, um, Paul was uh, stoned. Yeah, we talked about that last time. It was not the sort of stone that we think about today when somebody's high on drugs. They literally took rocks the size of your fist and they threw them at him until they thought he was dead. And When they thought he was dead, they dragged him outside the city and they left him there for dead. So this is what it says in Acts chapter 14, verse 19. So we've got that one up there somewhere coming. Then, the crowd of, then some of Jews from Antioch and Iconium won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking that he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered round him, he got up and he went back into the city. It's quite an amazing story. It's quite um, likely that uh, Paul and Timothy met here in, in, uh, in, in Lystra, but um, we don't know whether Timothy actually witnessed the, the stoning, but he certainly would have been aware of it and he was probably one of the disciples who gathered around Paul and uh, took him back into the city and nursed him back to health. We read in Acts chapter 16 verse 1 that uh, Timothy's mother was a Christian and uh, she was a, a um, uh, her, uh, yeah, she was Jewish but uh, Timothy's father was uh, Greek and so Timothy was uh, of mixed heritage we also read that um, if you go on to the next one that Timothy's mother was named Eunice and his grandmother's name was Lois and we read that in 2 Timothy 1 verse 5 and there it says that I'm reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. <coughs> Paul didn't have any children of his own, but Timothy he adopted as a spiritual son. And uh, we read about his relationship with Timothy in, in a number of places, and uh, we know that Paul had a, a really soft spot for Timothy. In fact, in First Timothy and in Second Timothy, we had see that Paul is descri describing Timothy as his son. In fact, in 2 Timothy 1 verse 1, he says to Timothy, My dear son, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul had a, a deep love for Timothy. He loved him as a son and that love was reciprocated by Timothy. At this time, Paul was in Rome. He was imprisoned in Rome. He was under guard and he was awaiting trial before Caesar. And uh, so we have Paul in prison, and he's writing this letter to Timothy, who's far away in Ephesus. 
And uh, when we read the verses that we're going to look at this morning, and it's found in 2 Timothy chapter 3 from verses 10 to um, 17, as we look at these verses, we see it's headed up in the NIV as a final charge to Timothy. This is Paul's legacy to his son Timothy. It's as if Paul could see that he wasn't going to um, survive this trial that was coming. And so he writes these words to encourage Timothy in the dark days that are about to uh, come upon him. Days where, where Paul would no longer be there to encourage him, to impart his wisdom to him, to share his knowledge with him, to encourage him. Days when Christians would be hunted and persecuted. Days when people would look at to people like Timothy for the words of wisdom, knowledge and encouragement just as Timothy had looked to Paul in the past. And so let's have a look at what these verses say. 2 Timothy chapter 3, reading from verse 10. A final charge to Timothy. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love and endurance. Persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Just over a year ago, my father passed away. It was in May 2018 that he passed away and he went to heaven. We held his funeral service and I was asked to take that service and it was one of the toughest jobs I've ever had to do. But we held uh, a service and we celebrated his life and we um, each as a family member held on to those dear memories that we have of him. His body was then taken to the cemetery in Tamuka and it was laid to rest next to his wife whom he married 66 years beforehand. In actual fact, it's the same cemetery that his grand grandfather was buried in. So it was quite a, quite a coincidence in that. But Dad left his family a legacy. My dad was never a wealthy man. As a matter of fact, I don't know how much money he had when he died, but he left some to his family, and uh, that money is not the legacy that I want to re remind you of this morning. It's not what we remember him for. I haven't been paid it yet, so I don't know where, even how, how much it is, but... It will be a few dollars, but not a lot. But he left his family so much more than money. His life was an example to us, and I thank him for what he taught me, and as a young lad in particular. He loved the scriptures. He read them every day, and he prayed. He was a man who prayed every day. He prayed for me. He prayed for my family. He prayed for the rest of his children, his grandchildren and great-grandchildren every day by name. I know he did that because I often heard him praying out aloud whenever I stayed there with him. Not all the family are going on for the Lord and that's one of the things that saddened him 
But he, had, he did have other problems too. He had worries. He had difficulties, just like the rest of us. But he remained faithful to the Lord all the days of his life. The last words that I heard him say were, Lord, I want to go home. I want to go home. And shortly after that, he passed into the presence of the Lord. And I'm sure that the Lord said, well done, good and faithful servant. When he was 22 years old, my dad bought a farm up at Oingaiti. Now, I don't know whether you know Oingaiti, but it's a little, little place up in the Rangitiki. My dad was brought up in Turakina Valley, which is just not too far away from here. But um, he bought this farm up in Oingaiti, and it was covered in manuka and uh, bulrushes. Now, if it was still in Manuka and it was still in Dad's name, I think I could be a rich man today. But anyway, that's a, that's a different story. That didn't happen. The Manuka was considered a pest and we had to go out and cut it down. And uh, it was a major job. You know, he spent many, many hours chopping down Manuka trees. He ploughed up the paddocks where he could, where the bulrushes were, and he converted it all into great um, farming country. And... Uh, he did very well in some ways. When he bought the farm, farm prices were high because of the Korean War. It was on at the time. But uh, not long after that, the Korean War finished and when the war was over, the prices for wool and, she and sheep meat dropped. But the mortgage repayments on the farm didn't. They carried on much the same. So mum and dad, they struggled and they didn't have much to come and go on. They had five children my dad never bought a brand new car like the neighbours did. Our cars were always second-hand ones with very high mileages. I think we were the last family in the district to get a, a black and white TV in those days. But it got so desperate in the end that the accountants advised him that, look, if you keep going the way you are, um, you'll owe more money to the bank than the farm owes you. And so they advised him to sell. The farm went on the market and eventually the next door neighbour's son bought it. He and I went to school together, so he wasn't much older than me at the time. Um, he was probably around 20 years old and he bought Dad's farm. Anyway, to cut a long story short, the next year was a real boom year in New Zealand farming and uh, my old schoolmate made so much money off the farm that season that he almost paid for the whole thing in one season. Well, about a year after this, my dad rang the neighbour, um, his father, the father of the son that bought it, and um, asked if he could come up and visit. Well, Frank and Dad were good mates. They were good neighbours, but um, Frank was a bit uneasy about seeing my dad. Um, and you could probably imagine why. He wasn't too keen about talking to him. Turns out he thought that Dad wanted to come back and revisit the price that they'd paid for the farm. But Dad didn't want to do that at all. He just wanted to reassure Frank that he had sold the farm at a fair market price and that he had no ill feelings about the deal at all. And so they remained good friends for the rest of their lives. Now Dad could have been bitter about all of that. He could have said, Lord, why on earth did you let me sell the farm at a bargain basement price when you knew the next year there was going to be a boom and I would have been uh, out, of, out of debt? But he didn't. He remained faithful to the Lord and he continued to serve as and where he could. In fact, he ended up going out to Ecuador as a missionary and he spent a number of years over there converting an old hospital into a, um, 
into a lodge that visiting surgeons could come and uh, stay with them and do the um, work that they wanted to do in the hospital and serve the, young, the, the, the people of that community over there. It was up in the Amazon uh, in Ecuador. The legacy that Dad left me was not one of riches in this world. The legacy that he left me was so much more than that. He left me with a love of the scriptures and he taught me to value them. It's the only foundation in life that's worth building on. It was his mother that led my brother Ken and I to the Lord when we were young children. And when we were young, after church, we would often drive out to Turakina Valley and have lunch with my grandparents. And um, it was there around the dinner table that I learnt so much because Dad and his dad and whoever else was there, his sister or my, um, his, his cousin John McClay from across the road or his brother Sandy, they would sit there and they would talk for hours about the scriptures. And I learnt so much just listening to what those people were saying and how I, how I treasure those memories. I miss my dad today and the things that we used to talk about. And so we come to this passage today where Paul is reminding Timothy of the things that he had witnessed in Paul's life. He said, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions and sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. Timothy was reminded of the things that Paul taught, the way that Paul lived his life, how he had learned to be content in whatever circumstances he faced during those times when he had little or nothing and sometimes when he had much. Philippians 4 verse 11 says this, I know what it is to be in need as I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That's the legacy that Paul left to Timothy, that confidence in the word of God and in the scriptures and in his living faith with the Lord Jesus himself. Timothy knew Paul's purpose in life and we read that in Romans 15 verse 20. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. Timothy knew about Paul's faith. He knew about his love. He knew his endurance. He knew his persecutions. He knew the sufferings that he went through, what kind of things happened to him in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra and other places. Antioch and Iconium were were towns that were near to Lystra where Timothy lived. So Timothy would have been very much aware of what happened to him there. This reminds us of the fickle crowd. You see, it was in Lystra that Paul healed a man who was lame. He said to this guy, stand up and walk. And the guy stood up and he walked. And the people were absolutely blown away by this. They were amazed And they thought, one of the gods has come down to live with us, to walk with us. And so they wanted to sacrifice bulls and all sorts of things to Paul and to to celebrate him as a god. And Paul said, hey, hang on, mate, this is not right. I'm not 
under God. I am representing the God of creation. I'm the one who is his messenger here to tell you about him. And he wouldn't let them do it. And then these people came in and they, um, they turned the crowd against him. Just like the crowd that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem. They were singing, Hosanna, praise the Lord, glory to God in the highest. And the next day they were saying, away with him, crucify him. We'll not have this man to reign over us. And so they took Paul and they stoned him. They thought he was dead. They dragged him outside the city and left him there. But in all these things, Paul gave glory to God and he said, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Paul then goes on to make an incredible statement. And I don't know whether you've noticed this little verse here, but it says in verse 12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus, will be persecuted. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There is a price to pay for wanting to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Did you know that? This is a matter of exercising the will. It's relatively easy to live for Christ when there's no opposition about, isn't it? That's why camps and uh, conferences are great experiences along the Christian walk. Uh, when I was a young fellow, we used to go to Easter camps over at Martin and uh, they used to have hundreds of people there and uh, it was a great feeling sitting there or standing there, I should say, and singing with all these people. And uh, I remember going down to Promise Keepers one year in Lower Hutt and there was over a thousand men in the Lower Hutt Town Hall singing praise to God, lifting our voices as one to glorify his name. Those times can be very uplifting and encouraging. But going back to school the next day or going back to work the next day can be pretty tough, can't it? Suddenly we're on our own and nobody wants to hear about how great it was to sing and praise the Lord. In fact, we can get the cold shoulder if we even try and talk about the Lord. The scriptures tell us that when we get serious with God, Satan gets serious with us and we can expect persecution and opposition. Exercising the will is a deliberate choice on the part of the Christian who is serious about their desire to follow Christ. He told us himself to take up our cross daily and follow him. Now I don't mean the little gold chain that we put around our neck with a little gold cross on it. That's not what he was talking about. He was talking about the cross and it's not a thing of beauty. It's not a thing of beauty that we should desire it. Rather, it's a place of persecution and death. A constant reminder to us that we have died to ourselves and now live for the Christ and for his glory. You see, the secret for living a godly life is to live it in Christ and in his strength and in his power alone. We can't do it on our own. Like a plant can only live if planted in the ground and it receives water and sustenance. It's the only way that it can live. And so it is with us. We have to live in him to live the Christian life. However, there is a cost to living a godly life. A godly life will attract the attention of the devil. Now that persecution may not be extreme or physical as it was in Paul's case, but it will be real all the same. It can be ridicule. Nobody likes being laughed at. It can be ostracism, you know, the cold shoulder and people ignore us. It could be nagging, it could be teasing, it could be that lack of promotion at work, 
physical ailments and troubles that come upon you and in your life. Anything that will take your attention away from God. Anything that will distract you from living a godly life. Anything that makes you despondent and fills you with doubt to the point where you want to throw in the towel and give up the good fight. Yes, wherever you work and live, if you want to live a godly life, there will be forces in opposition and you will encounter them. In light of the, God, uh, of the Apostle's statement, I wonder if it's a bit much to suggest that if in our Christian life it's too easy, perhaps we're not too godly. Think about it. Now this statement may not be universally true and it's not from the Bible, but I suggest that it's a good idea for all of us to examine ourselves like the psalmist said and, and see if it's true in our lives. See, examine our lives and see what's there. See what's really motivating us. And see if there's some sin in our lives that needs to be dealt with. What makes this thought of opposition in tough times hard to accept is Paul's next observation. We have got this opposition while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is a problem that Job, the prophets, David and psalmists faced and they wondered why all these other people seem to be so blessed and carry on uh, living such evil lives. But Proverbs 24, 19 and 20 tells us this, Do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked for the evildoer has no future hope and the lamp of the wicked will be snuffed out. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. This is back into Timothy. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. So we must not fret that the world seems an unfair and cruel place to, in which to live. Instead, like Timothy, we need to continue in what we have learned from those who taught us, from those who shared with us the gospel message. Our foundation is in the scriptures and we need to take hold of them and they will make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. My father's favourite hymn was Standing on the Promises of God. And that's how he taught and lived his life, standing on the promises of God. Now, do you know what the promises of God are? The promises of God are found in his word. And if you want to know what they are, you need to start reading it for yourself. You need to start trusting what the Bible tells you. You need to take hold of those promises that God has given to us and claim them as your own. That's what my dad did and that's the legacy that he left for us to hold on to. As a child I learned to give my life to the Lord and I learned how to relate to the Lord through knowing the scriptures and as I knew the scriptures, as I learnt them and as I read them, my faith grew just as Timothy's grew. And so we need to be rooted firmly in the foundation of God's word so that as Christians we can grow and flourish so that we can stand true when the times of testing come. So our faith will remain secure and God will be glorified when we look back and see his hand of provision in those trying times that we all face. I went to boarding school and um, 
my dad went to the same school and he was a young man too. And he said to me, Roger, when you go to school, you need to um, nail your colours to the mast. You know, you don't know what that means today. Uh, think about ships in the old days and they put a flag up and each flag had a different message. And he says, you need to show them that you are a Christian right from the very start. And how are you going to do that? Well, I wasn't quite sure what he meant, but anyway, he um, suggested that if I read my Bible and pray, I'll find out. And so the first night that I was there beside my bed, and it was the same bed that my dad slept in, I opened my Bible and started to read it just before lights out. And man, you should have seen the reaction from the guys around me. Oh, we've got one of these holy rollers here. And so it went on and one of the prefects heard what was happening in the dormitory and he came around and he came to my defence. I never had a problem with that after that but you know, they always made an effort to try and get me to trip up. One of the ways they did it one time, just for, uh, to give you an illustration of how tough it could have been at times, um, we were going home for the school holidays and uh, we all pack our bags and we're off and it's, it's great. Well, somebody decided that they were going to play a, a trick on me and they put some Playboy magazines in the bottom of my bag. And I took off home, went, didn't know anything about it. Mum grabbed my bag and she unpacks it and she discovers these things in the bottom of my bag. And, oh, oh, and Dad has to give me a little talk about it. I knew nothing about it. I had no idea. But anyway... Such is life. You know, they'll do anything to try and trip you up and get you into trouble. There are many jobs that people do, like um, they have an essential ingredient that we need to have. For example, can you imagine a painter with no paint? These people, they need uh, brushes and ladders and sandpaper and all the rest of it, and they've got all of that, but they've got no paint, and they can go through all the actions and they can start painting, but nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to change. Paint is foundational to the work that a painter does. Paint's essential. And what's the essential ingredient for a Christian? Well, let's read the Bible and find out. 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 to 17. It says this in verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So here are some big questions. Do we believe that God's word is a resource for all, for all ages, for all types of people, for all situations that we find ourselves in? Are we convinced that the scripture is, our, is the foundation to our daily lives, moment by moment? We should get excited because the scriptures is foundational. The scripture is foundational to our daily lives because the author is God, and it's God-breathed. Scripture is the foundation. Scripture came into being because God pumped himself into it. The whole book is there because of the breath of God. We know how important breath is, don't we? I remember when I was a young child at uh, primary school, we lived out in the back of Oingaitia uh, on the other side of the river, and a little school called Otamakapur, it's not there now, the road goes right through the middle of where the school building was. Um, but we had a creek down from the school that we used to use as our swimming hole in the summer. I must have been about six years old, I suppose, at the time. But um, 
we were down there having a swim in this creek and uh, I was on the other side of the creek. I'm not sure how I got there. I don't know. I don't remember that. But all the school was being called out of the water and we were heading back up to school to get changed and ready for the afternoon classroom. And uh, unfortunately, I was on the other side and so I saw that everyone was going. So I headed straight across water. But what I didn't know, because you couldn't see it, the water was brown, and literally. It was um, a really a dirty little creek, but um, I decided I'd walk straight across, and I did. I started walking. And everyone was yelling at me, and I thought, oh, they're encouraging me. This is great. And as I walked, the water got deeper and deeper, and then the next thing, I went into a hole. It's the last thing I remember. The next thing I remember was waking up on the side of the um, stream, the school teacher over me, and uh, I had no idea what had happened. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't see a thing when I was under that water. The teacher, clothes and all, he dived in and he rescued me. Can you imagine being pulled out of the water like that? And let's say that the worst happens and you need mouth to mouth. Even though the teacher had rescued me, even though he was breathing his life, his breath into me and putting his breath there, it wasn't until I started breathing again that I was alive. And that's how it is with the scriptures. The scripture is God breathes. It's God's breath. He infused it with the life of God. Adam and Eve, they messed it all up. God doesn't let them go. He finds them. King David and Bathsheba, they messed around. But God didn't let them go. Israel messed around and ended up in Babylon, but God didn't leave them there. Jesus comes and he comes and he says this, I have come so that you may have life and have it to the full. That's what Jesus says. Indeed, Jesus sacrifices his own breath so that God can breathe life into us. That's the message of the Scriptures. It's all about God breathing every word, every syllable, every jot and tittle were breathed into the Scriptures by the holy living God. And he did that to teach us about life, about living, and about eternal life. The book is foundational because of the author. The creator of all things is telling us how we are to be in relationship with him. And that's why the Bible is an essential part of our lives. It needs to be part of your life. You need to be reading it every day. When Jesus was tempted up on the, um, in the wilderness, he said to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You want to know what the word is that proceeds from the mouth of God? It's found in his word. You need to read it. Scripture is foundational to our daily lives because it's useful. If you go home to home shows, you're likely to get um, all sorts of gadgets on offer. I don't know whether you've seen some of these things like gadgets for peeling oranges, Gadgets for peeling apples, you know, you stick the thing in and wind a circle and it cuts the peel off. Fancy potato peelers. Another gadget for slicing bananas into even-sized slices. Another gadget for cutting carrots into long, thin strips or square strips. Have you ever bought any of these things and uh, got them home and found they're basically useless? Yeah, I have too. Well, these gadgets, they sit in the drawer because they really are useless. They can't really do what they claim to do and in the end the good old knife or potato peeler is more effective. The Bible on the other hand is not useless. 
it's useful. And Paul tells us there are three things that it's useful for here, or four things. First is teaching. Scripture is foundational to our daily lives because it's useful for teaching. Basically, if you want to know what's right and wrong, come to this book. You've got troubles understanding the issues that are facing the world today? Go back to this book. It will teach you what is right and what is wrong. The reason that you come to this book to be taught is because the author of the book knows everything. Take only a small part of an animal and people have to guess. Only you have the whole picture. Only God has the whole picture and you can understand what the picture is if you, um, if you see it from God's perspective. I don't know if any of you used to li- listen to um, Chuck Missler, but uh, I used to really enjoy some of his messages and uh, one of his favourite poems was this next one that I'm going to read to you. It's called The Blind Men and the Elephant. It was six men of Hindustan to learning much inclined who went to see the elephant, though each of them was blind, that might by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and happened to fall against his broad and sturdy side. At once he began to bawl. God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second, feeling his tusk, cried, Oh, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp, to me it's mighty clear. This wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal and happened to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand and felt upon the knee, or about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like, tis mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough, the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said, E'en the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can, this marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Hindustan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and strong, though each each was partly in the right and all of them in the wrong. The moral of the story is so oft in theologic wars, the disputants, I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean and prate about an elephant not one of them has seen. We need to be very careful. If we want to know what the Word of God is all about, we don't need to get stuck in like these blind men just homing in on one part. We need to know what the whole Scripture is all about. Just because we don't understand a lot of what's in the Old Testament doesn't mean that there's a truths for you to glean there. You need to look at the whole book to, go, to understand what the Scriptures are saying. And unless you know everything, you cannot really know anything. The author of the Scriptures knows everything. So he's the only one qualified to teach us the truth. Only God knows what's happened in eternity past and what will happen in eternity to come. I remember my father and my grandfather and so on, they used to talk about the Lord's coming. That was their favourite topic. They just were looking forward to the day of the Lord coming. And um, 
they had one theory and I can, I can remember it well and they always made this point that nobody knows the day when the Lord will return and that, that's clear. The scriptures tell us that, that not even the son knows the day when he will return. But um, they like to speculate and one of the things that happened in their lifetime was in 1948 the Jewish nation of Israel became a state and they were reading the scriptures and they were saying this and that and Jesus said that in this generation um, these things will happen and I'm not sure exactly where the verse was now but anyway they were thinking now what generation is this? You know, 40 years is a generation in the Jewish thing so maybe 48 and 4 um, 1988, maybe the Lord's coming in 1988. Well, 1988 came and went. No, it wasn't 1988. Um, ah, I know, that's generation that's talking about Gentile times, so maybe it's 2018. Well, 2018 came, and you know what? My father and his cousin, who used to debate this so often, they passed to be with the Lord in 2018, but the Lord still hasn't come for me. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, you can get homed into one little area of of speciality and uh, like these guys in the elephant you get it wrong you don't understand what the big picture is so we need to be very careful but God knows everything he's the only one who knows for sure and we need to trust him we go to the Bible and we can find out practical stuff things like how to run my marriage how to run my business how to look after my finances how to build godly relationships and to be kingdom minded how to work through major difficulties and hurts and abuse, how to raise our children. In all these areas and many others, the Bible has useful teaching that is foundational and we need to take time to read it. So that's the first thing that scriptures are useful for. The second thing is they're there and they're useful to rebuke us. The scriptures do rebuke us when we do wrong. The scripture is foundational in our daily lives because it shows us what we need to put right in our lives. It's like a mirror. And you know, you've got a dirty face and you, you don't realise it until you go and look in the mirror. Oh, heck, you know, I've got all this mud on or my makeup's gone wrong or whatever it is. I mean, I don't know what it is like to have makeup on, but you know and understand it's when you go into the mirror, it shows you what's wrong. And that's what the scripture does. It teaches us uh, and shows us those things that are wrong in our lives that need to be put right. It rebukes us. What is it that causes us to go and see a doctor? Well, if you're a guy, it's usually because your wife says you have to or your mum says you've got to. But um, you don't go to the doctor because you plan to go and have a beer with him. Uh, you don't go to the doctor to talk about uh, the weather and those sort of things. You go because something is wrong. You're constantly tired, for example. You're experiencing a lot of headaches you have chest pains, you have shortness of breath. You've come to see the doctor because you want to come up with a strategy to improve your health. You want to overcome these things which are slowing you down and making you feel um, debilitated. You're focusing on the shortcomings of your life and it doesn't seem to be a thing to get excited about, nor does it seem particularly useful. But you think about this. When you go to the doctor, you do so because you want to find out what's wrong with the purpose of discovering how to fix it. And it's the same way with the scriptures. When there's something wrong in our spiritual lives, we go through the scriptures and we find out what's wrong. And it's through rebuke that we improve our daily living. For through rebuke, God shows us where we have taken matters into our own hands so that we can change. 
It's through the scriptures that we're told that we fall short of God's standard, of God's glory. We may not like to hear what it says, but when God speaks, he has some pretty high and rigid standards about things like forgiveness. You harbouring unforgiveness in your life? He talks about things like controlling anger. Do you have trouble with a quick temper? About not taking revenge. You know, what happens when you're out there driving along the road and somebody does something wrong and you get mad and you want to take revenge? Well, that's one of the problems with road rage at the moment. There's a lot of it around and I'm a road safety engineer and I'm aware of it. I do it myself. Nothing makes me madder than somebody that's driving along at 80 k's on the open road. They get to a passing lane and they're up over 100 and you want to pass them and there's a cop down the other end pinging you in. But no... Scriptures tell us about loving our enemies. You know, there's people that we love to hate, but we shouldn't be hating them. We should be loving our enemies. The Scriptures tell us about shunning immorality. It tells us about controlling our tongue and a whole host of other things. I remember a, um, a song that we had used to sing when we were kids at Sunday school. It says, I, I met Jesus at the crossroads. And Satan too was standing there. And he said, come this way for lots and lots of pleasures I will give to you today. But I said, no, there's Jesus here. Just see what he offers me. Down here are my sins forgiven. Up there are home in heaven. Praise God, that's the way for me. There is a lot of value in allowing the scriptures to put a spotlight on these issues in your life. Because the beginning of improvement, the beginning of living each day comes with understanding where we went wrong. Proverbs 15 verse 31 says, those who listen to life-giving rebuke, did you hear that? To life-giving rebuke, to those who listen to life-giving rebuke will be at home among the wise. You want to learn spiritual wisdom? You listen when the word of God points out something in your life that needs to be put right. The very next verse warns you, those who ignore discipline despise themselves. If you're not willing to grow and change, then really you hate yourself. Rebuke is a concrete, relevant, personal, trustworthy and foundational use of the Word of God. But Paul gives us another reason to see the Bible as foundational. In one way, the next two items are similar, so we'll take them together. Correcting and and training in righteousness. Scripture is foundational in our daily lives, because it's useful for correcting and training in righteousness. The best way to grow after rebuke is to be corrected and trained. This is what the word does. It corrects us and it trains us. Correction and training in righteousness are two sides of the same coin. They both tell us what happens after having been rebuked. You see, God's word doesn't just um, strip us, though it does strip us of our sin. God's word doesn't just wound us, though it does wound us by pointing out our wrongdoings. God's word doesn't hurt us, though it does hurt us by challenging our comfort zones. God's word doesn't just knock us down, it does knock us down by revealing our complacency. God's word doesn't just do these things. God's word is designed to help us to move on, to straighten out our lives and to live our lives for his glory. Scripture connects us by telling us what sort of behaviour we need to have as we live for God. It sets out a pathway 
that we need to follow and it gives us all sorts of directions for our daily lives. If you want to know how to live, all we need to do is read the Bible. Scripture trains us by helping us take on that behaviour and make it our own. Training is all about making the things that we learn and applying them in our lives personally so that each day we wake up with a greater ability to walk in the ways of God and do what is pleasing for him. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching as it shows us how we ought to live, for rebuking, for showing us uh, when our life doesn't conform with God's will, for correcting because God wants our lives to be filled with his grace as we live in him and for training that we may be walking in the footsteps of Jesus. The importance of the scripture is why a core value of our faith is that we are word-focused. To reflect the transforming power of God's word in our own lives as we continually grow in spiritual maturity and holiness. And so we have seen what this means. We come back then to the original question. Are we convinced that scripture is the foundation of our daily moment-to-moment lives? Or are we more inclined to rely on ourselves? There's only one way to, to access the very breath of God and that is that the scripture is true and sufficient. Paul left Timothy with this assurance and what a great um, legacy for us to leave. It's been preserved and kept for us today so that we, the servants of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work that God has prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. I go back to the my family. My grandmother led me to the Lord. Timothy's grandmother and mother led him to the Lord. They taught him the scriptures as a young boy. For parents and grandparents here this morning, what are you doing for your children, for your grandchildren? Are you teaching them the value of the word of God? Do you show by your example that it is something that is foundational to your life, that you truly value it? Remember, this is the legacy that Paul left for Timothy. This is the legacy that my grandfather left to my father, that he left to me, that I've left for my children and now my grandchildren. Scripture has been preserved and kept for us today so that we, the servants of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work that God has prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. May God bless these thoughts to you as you consider what God is saying in his word. Thank you all.